Support for My Fellow Kansans was provided by the United Methodist Health Ministry Fund, working to improve the health and wholeness of Kansans since 1986 through funding innovative ideas and sparking conversations in the health community. Learn more at healthfund.org. Look at your pretty shirt. Happy. What is it? Are you happy today? Okay, so out here we've got two separate play areas uh, sectioned off, one for the younger infants and then one for the, the older kids. Don't let that English accent throw you. That's Phillips County, Kansas Economic Development Director Nick Pools. He got the job after following his wife back to her native Kansas. I'm tagging along on a tour of Phillipsburg's new child care center. Visitors from dozens of other small Kansas towns are also in tow. They've come to learn about how this town of 2,500 marshaled the resources to meet what is clearly an urgent need throughout rural Kansas, including places like Leota, where Tammy Simons is from. We only have one home daycare provider that is licensed by the state of Kansas. We have no group daycare homes. We have no child care centers. So our parents who need to work, they have nowhere for their kids to, to go. And that also limits our, you know, our economic development in our community because we can't attract teachers, we can't attract doctors, we can't attract the people that we need to keep our community running. So that's why it's urgent. That's why it's urgent. Phillipsburg Pools says felt the same urgency. It was a no-brainer as a recruitment thing, as a necessity to the community quality of life, we had to do a project like this. A no-brainer, something community leaders deemed essential to the town's survival, which hinges in part on its ability to attract younger workers looking for a place to raise their families. That thinking, that willingness to risk new ideas, to take action, separates towns resigned to their death from those that can adapt and thrive, even as they get smaller. Researchers have a name for it. They call it shrinking smart. Shrink smart communities are those communities that saw faster-than-average declines in population, but also had above-average gains in quality of life. I'm Jim McLean, and this is My Fellow Kansans, a podcast from the Kansas News Service. In this episode, we'll talk to social scientists working on a kind of survival blueprint for rural communities, and to people in those small towns grasping for a lifeline. Towns that don't have the power to reverse the economic and social trends driving people away but towns that aren't altogether powerless, at least according to the research. Some of these places have a very thriving quality of life, despite shrinking populations. They're great places to live. People are happy in their communities. They have top-notch services for children, good medical services, even though they're small and they're shrinking. Meet Dave Peters. He's a professor at Iowa State University and part of the team working on that survival blueprint. I do research on population, demographics, and rural social change. I teach classes in rural sociology and rural culture. And I also have an extension appointment where I go out into Iowa communities and help them address these issues of depopulation and change in their communities. Now, was it that work that led you to uh, coin the term shrinking smart? Yeah. When I would go into these communities, you would clearly see something was subjectively different, even though they had the same population, same level of income, same level of economic development. You could tell when you walked into certain towns, there was this vitality, where in other towns, it was absent. And so this research team I'm working with kind of coalesced on this concept called smart shrinkage. 
even though these communities had shrinking populations, that didn't mean they were declining towns. Shrinking, but not declining. That's not just a rhetorical distinction. It means there's something really different going on in those towns, something relatively rare. So far, just seven of the 99 Iowa communities studied by Peters and his team have earned the shrinking smart designation, including a few that my KCUR colleague Frank Morris visited last year for a story he did for NPR, a story that starts in a noisy factory. Business is booming here at Sukup Manufacturing in Sheffield, Iowa. They make those big round steel bins you see dotting the grain belt. Charles Sukup says he's hiring about as fast as he can and already employs close to 700 people in this town of just over 1,100. Well, I guess our philosophy is you bloom where you're planted. But Sukup's dedication to Sheffield hasn't been enough to shield it from the larger social and economic headwinds buffeting small towns. The big picture for all rural communities that don't have a connection to a growing metro area is that they are going to get smaller over time. Kimberly Zarekor teaches at Iowa State University and argues that little towns should stop beating themselves up for losing population and instead focus on making life better for the residents they still have. We call this the Shrink Smart Project. It's an idea that dawned on Zarekor when she studied in a city in the Czech Republic, one that saw its local coal and steel industry collapse 30 years ago. Ostrava is a place that's shrinking, losing people, but it's still a place that people love to live and are very loyal to. And it's also a place that outsiders look at and think, I don't want to be there. Sounds like any number of small American towns, right? Zerker says the difference is that Ostrava is embracing the idea that it can shrink and still improve. Zerikor and her colleague at Iowa State, Dave Peters, want to bring that paradigm shift to rural America. Peters says they're conducting surveys to figure out how it is that some remote rural towns manage to make life better for their residents, even as their populations drain away. So Sac City is probably one of our, our best examples of, of Shrink Smart in that the quality of the services, the quality of the government, the quality of the community, it's phenomenal. That's Sac City, Iowa, population 2200 and falling. It's 7 a.m. and members of the Sac City Community Foundation are discussing possible projects. 2500 to build a bike path, maybe chipping in for a marketing campaign. Board member Steve Irwin says that while Sac City wants to grow, it's quality of life that comes first. It's more about how the people feel about their towns. Are they happy? Do they have a sense of community? Do they have the essentials of life? Do they have health care and, and recreation? Smaller than most cities' tiniest suburb, Sac City boasts a hospital, a nice rec center, two pools, schools, a library, robust daycare, even a roadside attraction, the world's largest popcorn ball, a confection that weighs more than four and a half tons. This in a town that's lost a big chunk of its economic base and a third of its population since the 1980s. Irwin says the secret sauce here is people, super involved citizens, willing to work together for the good of the town. Lots of things factor into that shrinking smart distinction. But when I talked to Peters, he said it really comes down to how towns are wired. In rural sociology, you know, we talk about these different sets of infrastructure. We have the economic infrastructure, we have the built infrastructure, and those are important. But most towns have some semblance of economic or built infrastructure. Really what was variable was what we call the social infrastructure. 
Rural communities might be an exception, but most towns are home to a mix of people. Black, white, brown, rich and poor, old and young, and in between. But in towns that are shrinking smartly, those differences are bridged. Lives are woven together. The towns have leaders, some elected and some who just step forward, willing to take chances and forgive each other's mistakes. But in what Peters calls withering communities, a far more common example, people remain divided along those class, income, and racial lines. And they leave the heavy lifting to politicians, who they also tend to blame when things go south. We kind of combine these together, sort of trying of new ideas, focus on process, and acceptance of failure kind of is, is one and the same. So in these seven shrink-smart towns, you know, oddball ideas get discussed. <laughs> um, People kind of lay cards on the table and say, this is what I was thinking about. People talk about it. If it seems like a good idea, they'll move forward. If people don't think it's a good idea, you know, they move on to something else and there's no animosity. In these declining or these withering towns, we like to call them, once there's a failed project, the community turns nasty. <laughs> people that were involved in that project are stigmatized. And then, of course, nobody wants to take the risk of trying to do anything. What other indicators are there of this cohesiveness and this ability to look toward the future with some degree of optimism and determination? For instance, I'm thinking uh, you might look back over a community's history of school bond issues or Mm -hmm. whether or not they're willing to tax themselves to keep the hospital open, those kinds of things. Are those also indicators of a community that is paying attention to the right things? We have some what we call common themes or or common threads that we think are are symbolic of this progressiveness. One is local giving. So you talked about uh, cities, you know, passing uh, municipal infrastructure bonds to improve the hospital or improve the streets or or broadband is now talked about a lot. But what we found in these shrink smart towns is that it's really local giving. There was one town of, of 500 in the northern part of Iowa that had four community foundations with assets of nearly three-quarters of a million dollars. A town of 500 people (laughs) was able to raise that amount. And so it was community groups that identified the priorities, identified the needs, built the coalitions of people, and really provided a large amount of the funding to implement these projects. It wasn't led uh, by local government, which was surprising to us. You know, oftentimes government programs come with strings attached. And so if all you're offered is broadband funds or housing development funds or <laughs> to improve your roads or, or, or wastewater and treatment systems, and really the need is, is daycare, uh, you know, what do you do? Uh, that, that's not addressing that community's problems. That brings us back to Nick Pools and the story of how Phillipsburg found a way to meet that urgent need for quality child care. So we did a strategic planning initiative about five years ago, and that was identified as one of the the main priorities of what the community would like. Um, And in talking with a lot of the business managers and and CEOs of of local companies, recruitment was an issue as well. They could have a really great candidate come to the community to interview for a good position. One of the first questions they ask is, what's the availability of daycare in your community? Tired of not having a good answer to that question, people rolled up their sleeves and got to work. High schoolers, Rotary Club members, and others. They gutted, then renovated an old convenience store. They wrestled with red tape to meet state licensing rules. And they hustled up some grant money from a foundation dedicated to enlivening communities in northwest Kansas. We serve 26 counties in northwest Kansas, so if you start in Saline County and go north to Nebraska and west to Colorado, that's our quarter of the state. 
That's Betsy Waring. She guides grant-making for the Dane Hansen Foundation. Located in tiny Logan, Kansas, it supports community projects throughout the region to the tune of $20 million a year. So our mission is to improve the quality of life for the communities and the people in northwest Kansas. That's our mission, and we look at issues such as you know, population decline and economic development and quality of life, and we make grants in the areas of education and arts and culture and just a variety of things. Remember what Dave Peters said about the importance of local giving and shrinking smart communities. Well, this is a case in point, because in addition to its own grant-making, the Hansen Foundation is helping to sustain a network of community foundations. Businesses like Nextech also play a role. It grew from a small rural telephone provider into a regional communications powerhouse. It's got a stake in keeping its market strong, so it works with the foundation on a paid internship program. That program is aimed at slowing the steady exodus of young people. The company asked its customers to help out to round up their monthly bills to the next dollar to pitch in on the costs of the internships. And some 16,000 of those customers said sure. So our goal is really youth retention. So we want to give... Jackie Beckman works for Next Tech and runs the internship program. The idea, she says, is to help young people see rural Kansas in a different light. We're hoping that they'll be able to um, experience all that their community offers, uh, not only with one particular business, but um, they have opportunities for networking, um, skill development. So, you know, if you're a high school student and this may be your first opportunity to understand what's available in your hometown. So the point is, you're planting a seed and and, and suggesting to them that no they have options that maybe they didn't know they had. Exactly, yeah. Um, I'll use myself as an example. When I graduated from high school, I received um, luggage. So, you know, we're, we've been in this habit of, of telling people, hey, there really isn't anything here for you. Uh, you need to go out um, and get your education and go to an urban area. So um, one of the things that our organization is trying to accomplish through this program is also a culture shift of being able to um, express to other community business owners, um, to the schools, and to parents and grandparents that there are a lot of opportunities. We just need to be talking about it. I got to go on a road trip to Dodge City. That's where the Southwest Kansas Library System is located, and we got to visit... It's graduation day, and with parents and sponsors looking on, several of this year's interns are giving presentations about what they did over the summer. And we toured the train station there, so that was just a fun day. And then just an overview. Um, it was just a really cool experience. I, it was my first like real job, so I just got to see how business works and so much more. So at the end, and I just want to thank you all for this experience. It was awesome. Beckman can't yet document the program's effectiveness with hard numbers. But in eight years, it's grown from four to 84 participants. And my conversations with several of this year's crop convinced me that it's working as intended to change perceptions. Oh, yeah, definitely. Before this internship, I probably would have said that I never would come back to Hayes, my hometown, ever again. But after this internship, I really learned that Hayes has a lot to offer, especially with the arts. I think it's just kind of society gives us that idea that if we're smart, we need to go somewhere else, that there aren't jobs for us around here. Which isn't true, because like we're seeing through it. I want to come back to Phillips County to work. 
So what do you think the chances are that you'll go off to medical school in some big metropolitan area and change your mind about coming back here? Oh, I don't think I'll change my mind. I just don't think I could leave this town. Participating businesses also seem to be profiting, often getting more than they bargained for. Uh, our intern this year was uh, Ross Cole. He is a, a student that just graduated from Long Island, Kansas. He was absolutely fantastic. In fact, it was hard to keep up with him. We would assign him a task which we thought would take him three or four days and he'd get it done in six hours. I learned more about it, coincidentally, with an email I'd received from Rachel. And it was like, wow, if I was going to have somebody, boy, this would be somebody I'd like to have because I knew what her capabilities and, and standards would be. And uh, it was just too good to pass up. The Shrinking Smart research team hasn't studied communities outside of Iowa. So I can't point to any place in Kansas and say that's a town that's shrinking smartly. But I can say that my travels across the state have taken me to communities that seem to have at least some of the characteristics identified by Peters and his team. Phillipsburg is one of them. Beloit, Cortland, and Clyde also come to mind. Places where people are stepping up to start businesses and lead projects, big and small, to improve the quality of life for themselves and their neighbors. My Kansas News Service colleague Stephen Basaha came across an example of that in Moran, a town of about 500 in southeast Kansas. People there didn't have a place to work out, so with a few leading the way, they pushed for one. And the gym they built is sparsely equipped and definitely not fancy. But as Stephen reported, people are using it to connect and get healthier. Private health clubs are rare in rural Kansas. There just aren't enough gym rats to make a profit. And building and maintaining public rec centers requires the kind of money many small towns just don't have. But in 2017, the folks in Moran came up with a novel solution. A council member remembered their failed gas station, turned failed steakhouse, turned storage space, and thought, huh, what about a gym? Right here, uh, where the bench press is, this would be where your counter, you'd come up and pay your pay for your gas or your candy bar or your pop. Retiree Larry Ross helped convert the old filling station into a small fitness center. No personal trainers or basketball court, but for 10 bucks a month, locals get a key fob and access to the building's bench press, elliptical machine, and other equipment. Ross says the same things that make the place ideal for a gas station make it great for a gym. The big windows in a spot on the highway give him a great view of a new wind farm going up. Front row view, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't have got better seats if you was in one of those uh, big high-priced boxes in the stadium, you know? School psychologist LaVon Foster says what's more important than the view is the convenience. She says working out at the center has made her healthier than she's been in a long time. Yes, I've, you know, lost, oh, I don't know, was it 26 pounds? So I'm, I'm doing pretty good. The Shrinking Smart Research, Peters says, shows that investing in people projects, like gyms fashioned out of old gas stations and convenience stores turned into daycare centers, pays bigger dividends than industrial parks and tax incentives, even if the objective is to recruit new businesses. You know, the common refrain from these communities that were not very progressive is that their solution to this is if only we could get a manufacturing plant to come in and, and hire 150 jobs. Well, every there's 10,000 towns with the exact same strategy. What we're telling small towns is that if you can enhance that quality of life, if you can enhance the way you make decisions and the way your community comes together to address decisions, that positions you better to go after a new firm. The one thing that might be distinguishing when that company comes in is that they see how progressive your town is, 
how they're open to change, they're looking to move forward, that becomes infectious. Still, some basic things, brick-and-mortar things, also matter. Good schools, decent housing, high-speed internet, a restaurant or two in a main street lined with something other than dusty antique shops. But at or near the top of the things-that-matter list is health care. And sustaining that life-and-death service is a challenge for a growing number of communities in rural Kansas. Our rural communities are challenged, and because of that, our small hospitals are challenged as well. A look at efforts to save rural health care by rethinking it. That's next time on My Fellow Kansans. My Fellow Kansans comes from the Kansas News Service, a collaboration of public radio stations KMUW in Wichita, Kansas Public Radio in Lawrence, High Plains Public Radio in Garden City, and KCUR in Kansas City. Jim McLean reported, wrote, and hosted the podcast. He also crisscrossed thousands of miles around the state to record dozens of conversations with his fellow Kansans. Scott Cannon and Suzanne Hogan edited the podcast script. Scott also edited digital stories that Jim wrote that appear at ksnewsservice.org. You can also find some great photographs of Kansas and Kansans there, shot primarily by Chris Neal. Ben Stanton worked as field producer, researching, interviewing, and organizing the recordings you just heard. I'm Beth Golay. I worked with Luann Stevens, Jay Schaefer, and Ben in the audio production. Primary Color Music composed our theme song, and other music you heard during the season came from Free Music Archive. Jordan Kirtley designed our logo. Event planning and social media promotion came together only with the help of Grace Lotz, Michael Russo, and Sarah Jane Crespo. This concludes episode three of this six-episode season. Look for episode four of My Fellow Kansans in one week. And remember, if you want to support more work like this, please contribute to the public radio station in Kansas you listen to most. <laughs>